Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Many things, many exercises, many forms of meditation and concentration are called mindfulness, but the most basic is um, I'm just going to go into a zone in which I'm not judging anything. Things are just happening, and I'm noticing them, but I'm not going to form a judgment of them. And that can be a wonderful reprieve from all this judgment work we do day in and day out. It can de-stress us. And so for that reason, it's valuable. But there are a lot of claims made for the benefits of mindfulness that are not um, supported by um, extensive evidence, you know, that they, they relieve depression, uh, that they improve concentration. Uh, they can reduce stress, they can even reduce pain, but a, a lot of claims are not supported by evidence. And more importantly, there are also risks which are often ignored. And these risks include being more gullible, more susceptible to other people's suggestions. Because if I switch my judgment meter off, if I'm just noticing things, then I may not notice, you know, I may not notice that some of the thoughts coming to me or being proposed to me, um, I really should be critical of. So, you know, if mindfulness is useful to you, if you've experienced it as something positive, then fine, but be aware that claims for it far exceed what's actually shown. And also, don't forget that as with anything, there are risks and they should be respected. Do women have a higher sensitivity to criticism than men? And can understanding the role of praise and blame preserve a tricky marriage? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with psychologist, writer and researcher Dr. Terry Apter, whose latest book, Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life, has just been published by W.W. Norton, where Terry writes... Blame is the earliest teaching tool in a child's social and moral education. No one is safe from negative judgment and exposure. Terry goes on to state that when people compare their ability, their effort, their achievement, or even their health and the quality of their relationships to others, they are likely to rate themselves as better than average. So, is it possible to avoid unconscious bias at work? And how important are judgments to our sense of self? I'm Terry Apter. I'm a research psychologist, and uh, for 25 years, I've looked at identity, family dynamics, friendships. Um, this is the first book I've written that looks primarily on couples, though I have written on in-law relationships, and that, of course, always touches on couples. been very interested in children's uh, development within the family. And so I've written books, The Confident Child, um, You Don't Really Know Me, which is about teens and parents, The Myth of Maturity, which is about that long transition 
from adolescence to adulthood. And my recent book is called Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. And I'm looking at the way in which we're constantly making judgments of ourselves and other people. And a lot of our interchanges with other people have praise and blame embedded in them. And we're often not aware of that. And I want to bring it to the surface. Really well done on the book, Terry. I have to say it was an illuminating read. I picked your book up on a train uh, from Dublin to Sligo and um, I read for over three hours non-stop. Couldn't pull it down because I uh, learned so much about how how I'm communicating, the mistakes we're all making and how much judgment comes into everyday aspects of life that you can't avoid it. I might throw you a big wide open uh, question to kick things off and sure we can take it, we can take it from there. Um, If I was to say to you that um, I value myself and I value my worth, who gives a damn what other people think of me? What would you say to that? I would say that's a common aspiration. It's a myth that we can ever achieve that. We do, of course, care more about what some people think than what other people think. But when you look at how we've developed, you can see that Ceasing to care about other people's judgment is simply not in our nature. And I would, I, I would look at that from two different angles, from two different histories. First of all, it's from our personal history. We're born very dependent on other people. Um, our whole sorts of sense of self comes to life as other people, usually our parents, respond to us very positively, thinking this baby is the most wonderful thing. I'm curious about this baby. I want to get to know him or her. And I'm sure what will develop is wonderful. Um, But I also know that I have to make it very clear to this young baby and young child that certain things are not acceptable and um, that that child will feel my disapproval and I have to prepare that child for living in a world in which other people will be judging her both positively and negatively. So, you know, just from the start, we're um, geared to looking at other people's judgments of us. Could it be argued, Sherry, that our judgments are forms of preferences? Well, preferences... Um, often come into it, but there's a huge difference between saying, I think this person is trustworthy, I feel good being with this person, um, I want to learn from this person, on the one hand, and saying, you know, I like sweet things, but I don't like sour things. Those are preferences, and they're the latter are preferences and not judgments. But um, when we like, even when we like someone, and we could often say to someone we dislike, uh, say we're breaking up with someone, you know, I'm, I'm not really all that into you, I, you know, I'm no longer attracted to you, or I don't like you, or I don't feel comfortable with you, we can say, it's not you, it's just my preference. We say that in order to minimize the judgment that is implicit But the other person will experience that as a judgment. It will be, it's tantamount to saying, in some way, I find you deficient. In some way, you're not who I think you should be. In some way, you're 
you know, you're not coming up to my standard or you're not meeting my needs. And so they, they are involved personal and subjective responses, but they are very different from what we think of as mere preferences. You write, our judgments are more integral to who and what we are than our memories. I find that very interesting, but also quite surprising. Can you talk me through that? Well, that research, those findings come from research on dementia sufferers and how families and friends respond to someone who's suffering from dementia. So someone who is suffering from dementia may not be able to remember anything about his or her past, may not even be able to recognize the people around him. But other people will say, when is it that the person who suffers from dementia is no longer the person I know or love? And research shows that it isn't when the person who has dementia loses memory. It may not even be when the person who suffers dementia doesn't recognize them. Because if that person still um, feels very positive about some things, is responsive to kindness in the way that he or she always was, um, likes people for the same reason he or she always did, then others will say, oh, I see that it's still the same person. So when someone suffering from dementia still seems to exercise the same kind of basic judgments that they did before they lost their memories, they still seem to be the same person. So that's why I say that. That seems to be how a lot of people assess who a person really is. God, it's also interesting, and um, I suppose what you're saying there, it's, it's instinctive, really. Um, I was very interested in your chapter on intimate judgments, praise and blame within couples. I'm just wondering, do you think it could be argued that some couples are, um, you know, that their relationships are bonded or held together in some way by mutual blame? There are, I think any clinical um, marital therapist would say there are some people who don't seem to be able to separate because their revenge on one another is not complete. So sometimes um, mutual blame is a bond. You you, want to keep at it until you have the final word. But those cases are very much outliers. Um, What, of course, keeps most couples together is the glue of praise. I think you're wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, I love looking at you. I love being with you. You make me laugh. I think the way you look at the world is so interesting to me. I feel comfortable and supportive when you're here. I feel you get me. All of those things are very praiseworthy things to say about someone. And in a marriage, when one person messes up um, The expectation is that a partner will say, I know you've made this mistake, but on the whole, I think you're wonderful. And this mistake is small compared, and it doesn't diminish the fact that you're basically wonderful. So that's really the glue that keeps most couples together and um, most, you know, happy couples together because 
no one would imagine that the couple, that those few couples who may be bonded by mutual blame, one couldn't imagine them as being happy. You write, it's the fragility of necessary praise rather than any diminishment of sexual attraction that poses the greatest threat to marital harmony. I thought that was extraordinary and it got me thinking that maybe there's a lot of couples out there that, that fail to recognise that point. I think a lot of people, couples themselves, um, and um, until recently, um, psychologists, including marital therapists, did not understand what it was that bound couples together, why some couples stayed together and why some couples uh, separated, why their marriage, their, that partnership failed. Um, but it was looking at how couples interact that led to this realization of how important praise was. But of course, looking at couples' interaction, you also see that that praise is fragile. And it's fragile because when you're living with someone, when you're negotiating the nitty-gritty of daily life, there, and you have very high expectations of someone, you are going to have complaints about how they behave. And these complaints can be, um, you know, you didn't renew our car insurance, and I thought you would, and that's really let me down. It can be, I shouldn't have to ask you for help with this. You should know me well enough to know I want help for this. Um, You aren't listening, um, you know, as well as you really messed up on this DIY stuff. So they're, they're um, in, interacting, uh, you know, across um, a broad spectrum of domestic and practical life, and there's going to be complaints. And the key thing is how you deal with those complaints. So there may be some couples that bicker a lot, always complaining, you don't do anything right, um, I don't like the way you've done this, um, I shouldn't have to ask. Um, you're not being helpful, you're not filling your part of the bargain, you know, or you're really annoying me. And there can be a lot of that. But as long as there's also a lot of, um, oh, that was very helpful, Um, what you said was so interesting, I want to hear more, Um, I really want you to come with me because I enjoy your company, Um, it's so much fun doing this together, as long as there's more praise than blame, then that can, that can repair the damage that blame does, because blame does um, carry quite a punch in, in marriage. It's very hurtful, even on a small level, to be told, you're not what I expect you to be, you're not what I need you to be, you know, you are not the praiseworthy person I wanted to join my life with. Um, And blame can be, um, blame is a dangerous place to go because what happens when someone blames us is that it's so painful being blamed that we become defensive. And so we may say, you think, you know, you think I'm a bad listener. What about you? You never listen. Or, um, I'm not the one who's supposed to renew the insurance. You're the one who is. I was counting on you to do it, and you've really messed up. So, 
we can become pretty nasty when someone blames us because it hurts so much. And research has found that what happens in those quarrels in marriage is very important to whether it lasts or it fails. What about stonewalling in relationships? I'm just wondering how destructive is that? Because some people would see it as a kind of a, a communications tool, if you will. And um, I know you, you, you throw out some interesting stats around stonewalling. I think you say somewhere that 85% of those who do stonewall are men. And you say stonewalling is not meant to be offensive. It is self-defence. So how would you understand it all? Well, uh, OK, so stonewalling is when one person as it were, turns into a stone wall. There's no responsiveness. Um, A person may leave the room or a person may just shut down. So, uh, you know, there's no willingness to engage in an argument, and that usually happens in an argument situation, in a conflict situation. So someone is just shutting down and saying, you know, I'm not going to talk about this. I don't want to engage with you. And that's why... It feels so offensive to the other person to say, I don't want to listen to you. Um, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not interested in hearing your side. I don't want to engage with you. These are very insulting. Well, you can understand when somebody um, feels the most appropriate action is stonewalling because otherwise they'll, um, you know, they lose the rag altogether. So they feel that that is a necessary form of containment. Well, that's right. Because what happens, people stonewall when they're in a state of great physiological or or emotional arousal. You know, they feel, oh my gosh, this is such a difficult situation. People are attacking me. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to to handle this. Um, I'm making her very angry, and I don't know why. And if I say anything, I might make her more angry. Or I might get so angry that, um, you know, I will say something I'm very sorry about, or maybe I'll even lash out and hit her. So I've got to, so yes, from the person who stonewalled, the person who looks at someone who's stonewalling says, this is very insulting. The person who is stonewalling is saying, I've got to shut down, I've got to contain things because I'm in a danger situation and I don't know what to do and I don't want to make things worse and I'm just, you know, freezing um, uh, rather than um, engaging and trying to make things better. Now, the question is, you know, why is it that 85% of stonewallers are men? And what very interesting research on marital conflict showed was that um, in the course of an argument with a partner, men tend to get um, much more stressed much more quickly, much sooner in the argument than women do. So there's fascinating research which looks at not only what's said in a marriage conflict, but also how the body is responding, the heart rate, the blood pressure, perspiration rate. And so all of these are uh, show signs of stress much earlier on in an argument in men than in women. And so the man, rather than suffer this or in order to try to contain this awful state of stress, closes off, shuts down and stonewalls.
And for a highly volatile, passionate woman, that can absolutely do your head in. Well, because that can do your head in, and it's insulting to anyone yeah. to, to say, "I don't, I don't want to, I don't care that you're." It seems like they're saying, "I don't care that you're angry," but the real reason behind it is, I don't know how to manage your anger. I don't understand it. I don't know how to make it better, and I feel it's attacking me. I feel your anger and whatever you're saying is casting blame on me and I don't know how to make it better so I'll just shut down. Terry, I was very interested in your research on the issue of blame and praise outside of marriage and its rela- uh, relationship to infidelity. And um, you you write somewhere that the most reliable predictor of whether someone will have an affair is a measure of negative comparisons between his or her partner and other potential partners. I thought that was extraordinarily interesting because, you know, a lot of couples will come home after a stressful day in the office and um, they're probably getting a bit of attention in the workplace, whether their work is good or for whatever, for whatever reason. And, you know, they feel very unnoticed in their own relationship or they feel very undervalued. And they possibly will say, as I was talking to Jimmy or James or whatever it is in the office and are, and he's great at blah, 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 or she's great at whatever. And they forget how destructive um, that that can be. And, you know, it's very easy to see then how people can actually get into um, extramarital affairs purely just to be noticed, to get some attention or, or wanting to feel attractive, not condoning it. But you can see how people rationalise it all to themselves, can't you? Well, I think you've, you've brought up a number of um, very important things here. So say I'm at work and someone has praised me and I come home and I say, you know, James said I was a wonderful colleague and, um, you know, really liked my presentation and uh, my prospects um, are really, really good. And if my husband says, oh, wow, that's great. And I, I, you know, I know that too. And, you know, how clever of James to see this, then um, I feel, uh you know, I, I feel doubly praised. I feel pra- praised at work and then praised at home. But if the message is, well, James thinks that I'm um, a really good worker and that I'm a good communicator, and you're always complaining that I can't communicate anything and that I'm not a team player, um, you know, and why can't you be more like James? Then that, that spin on it is a way of saying to my husband, you know, James is what I need in a partner and you're not what I need in a partner. But there are a number of uh, things, there are a number of reasons why infidelity feels like blame. I mean, first of all, infidelity usually involves some kind of lying, And lying to someone you're close to, someone, um, you know, you're supposed to uh, be open with, uh, someone you're supposed to trust, that can be so um, offensive and degrading. And, uh, you know, initially it's very puzzling uh, for the partner who's been lied, who's being lied to, you know, you you think that your partner's world is one thing. You think, oh, gosh, he's so busy at work. He um, has to stay late, poor guy, and he doesn't want to talk to me because he's under stress, and I understand that. And then you find out that, no, it's, it's not work stress. He's having an affair with someone else. So, you know, it's not only the 
the fact of the actual infidelity, but how that has changed the relationship. And then you ask, and what has he said about me? How has um, this private world been described to someone else? And how do I come? How do I come across in this new alien description of who I am? How does he justify it? And um, so again, that feels like blame. I'm not giving him what I want. Um, the my assumption that he thinks of me as basically not only a good person, but among the best. This is threatened by the fact that I know he's discussing my failings with someone else. This, this is much worse than him complaining directly to me. And then, of course, there's our, the human response to um, a sexual partnership. You know, that we feel that as praise and comfort and inclusion, and when we find that we've been excluded from our partner's sexual activities, we feel, um, we feel left out. And usually the partner will justify his or her infidelity by saying, well, I wasn't getting what I needed within the marriage. Um, you know, she never appreciated me. Um, he never listened to me. He wasn't a real friend. I felt I'd lost him. And, you know, we know that. There, there's a supposition that somehow I am not enough, that I failed if my, in my partner's eyes, if my partner is unfaithful. And so it's very, very difficult to separate um, infidelity from, um, you know, a sense of I'm being blamed, I'm being found deficient, um, you know, I'm just not up to scratch. And then when you think about um, all the other challenges that any couple is facing <laughs> on yeah. any given day, it's um, it all becomes so, so enormous. Timmy, um, you bring up the work of psychologist John Gottman, and I found it really, really fascinating. He runs the um, the marriage lab in America, and I think um, he has interviewed over 3000 couples or yeah. some, some something around that figure. And he's come up with data to predict what marriages or what couples will stay together and what, what relationships will collapse and he's a magic ratio of five to one I think and it's fascinating to think that you can apply that framework to any given relationship whether it's a friendship a work-based relationship or or a marriage sex stuff as well. Yeah well um, what's so fascinating about John Gottman's work and what's so helpful about it is that um, it started in the 1970s and he set up this marriage lab where he has uh, couples talking about neutral situations and then talking about areas of disagreement or conflict. And it's here we get that rich data on um, what's going on in, uh, physiologically as well as what we can see just by listening to them. And uh, he has 3,000 couples over the decades and um, can look back and say which couples argued and how much did they argue, and what happened during those arguments, and who, and um, how did they, how many stayed together, and how many, how many marriages succeeded, and how many marriages failed. And he found that once he analyzed all this 
um, data that those couples who had five instances of praise to every one instance of blame were fines. So there could be a lot of blame as long as there was, a, you know, five times more praise, they were very likely to stay together. And this can be used very effectively um, by marriage therapists to help couples who are in trouble. They, you know, they may love each other, but just find that living together is so difficult and uh, causes such amount of pain. And, and, you know, one common reason is I feel awful about myself in this marriage. I have no self-esteem in this marriage. And so a therapist could help a couple say, um, you know, you have to make sure you're voicing all the things you admire about her. Um, and when you do complain about her, make sure it, the complaint is localized to just what this one thing was, not a big characteristic. You know, don't go from um, you've ter- you, the television is turned on for too long. Don't go from that to you never care about my feelings. You're so inconsiderate. You know, try to try to focus just on one particular instance rather than a global fault. You would think once you know about this magic ratio that it's so important to have five instances of praise to every one instance of blame, you would think that the couple themselves could then swing things so that their marriage would succeed. The trouble is when you're already in a very negative frame of mind, you sometimes fail to see that the other person is praising you. And this is another bit of research that's been done. So um, you have a happy couple, you have an unhappy couple, and you have an independent observer. And the question is, how often is your partner praising you, you know, over the last three hours? And in a happy couple, the number of instances of praise that they see will match the number of instances of praise that the independent observer sees. But in the unhappy couple, they'll see only about 50% of the praise exchanges that the independent observer can see. So when you're unhappy, you you, you fail to see, fail to take on board, fail to acknowledge Um, praise responses in your partner. And that's why it's sometimes more helpful if things are really going wrong to have a therapist step in and help you see what's going on, help you see what you're not seeing, and of course help your partner be more explicit or more obvious and more emphatic about, about the praise and how to avoid that downward spiral that blame can often trigger. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. 
It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with psychologist, writer and researcher, Dr. Terry Apter, whose latest book, Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life, has just been published by W.W. Norton, where Terry writes... The workplace provides a theatre in which we are both audience and actor in the drama of everyday judgments. Judgments, ours of others and others of us, play a key role in job satisfaction. I asked Terry, why is it that some managers fail to take that point on board when it comes to trying to motivate or offer feedback to staff? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why a manager would fail to recognise this. I mean, some managers feel that it's very, very important to point out the faults of someone, of other workers. Um, It might be that the manager is much more interested in Uh, presenting himself as someone who's important and praiseworthy and in charge of everything that goes right and doesn't need to take responsibility for anything that goes wrong. That often happens in the workplace. And in some studies, it's been found that more than a third of people leaving a workplace say that they're leaving because they're not being given appropriate praise or credit for what they do, that, you know, a manager just isn't seeing that. And um, nearly a quarter of people who leave the workplace in, in, in some studies say they left because the boss blamed others for their mistakes. So managers, bosses are human, and they don't like to be blamed for things. They don't um, like to be found deficient, and they may resort to those damaging strategies for protecting themselves from blame that you know we're we're all prone to so you know it isn't it isn't my fault that um this initiative failed it was a great initiative the the fault is that you you underlings didn't carry out my wishes you didn't understand what i meant you didn't follow through so there are um there is a lot of advice in terms of managerial courses to say the best way to motivate people is to look at what you know look at the good things of them talk about um this is your skill set this is what you should do and you know make the best use of their of workers' qualities, so you can praise them a lot. But it's much more difficult to do that, you know, in the thick of it, and especially difficult if you have a failing organization, uh, because when an organization is failing, it's very common to blame everyone around you for the failure. You're also feeling threatened because jobs are at stake, um, and you want to make sure it's not your job at stake. So, um, you know, when an organization is failing, um, you would think they would all, everyone would want to pull together and do the best because if things get better for the organization, then they get better for all of the workers. But this often doesn't happen because they're too, each is too busy trying to protect his or her own status and therefore casting blame on others. What about gossip in the workplace? How do you understand how gossip functions? Yeah, gossip is a big thing um, in our lives. Uh, We spend a lot of time 
men, women, um, I know it's associated mainly with women, but it's as common in men as it, in women, you know, of all ages, um, engage in gossip. And gossip, by which I mean talking about other people, relating news about other people. Gossip, of course, is not always negative, um, though it has negative associations, because when we're talking about someone behind their back, we have less inhibition in uh, focusing on what we see as their deficits and their flaws. But um, gossip is a way of getting unofficial information about how people are living and also what the person you're gossiping with, what judgments they have about other people. So in the workplace, this can be... um, it can be helpful, you know, it might be helpful to know gossip, you know, um, stay away from um, Chester because, uh, you know, don't go into Chester's room on your own. He's, he's, he's very predatory. Or um, this is what you have to do to um, get on his good side. Um, this is what he likes specifically in a presentation. That will impress him, that won't. So that can be very helpful. But if you're the subject of gossip and it's negative, it can be very damaging, you know, if, um, because we all make some mistakes and, you know, what we do isn't perfect. So let's say that I give a presentation and one of my forecasts is really turns out to be way off. And that's the nature of forecasts. Some of them aren't going to be right. But if someone says about me to my boss, who's new, oh, yeah, she's always making bad forecasts. Don't listen to a word she says. You know, she's really bad. She has to be contained. Um, I don't like her conclusions, and therefore I'm going to focus on this unsound forecast. Well, I don't know what's been said, but it may have, it may be repeated, and the more it's repeated, the more it seems as if it's a fact. and. I don't know exactly what's being said, but I can see that people are a little bit reserved when I uh, um, explain what I think is going to happen. I can't defend myself directly because I haven't heard exactly what's been said. But, you know, something is making me really uneasy. I can see how little um, glances being exchanged while I'm um, giving a presentation, while I'm showing my graphs, while I'm going through this material. I think, you know, what's wrong? And I don't know, but I know something is, and that makes me very stressed, and it may uh, make me a bit defensive, so I become less fun to be with. Um, so, you know, that that can spread a lot of damage, um, very difficult yeah. to undo. Terry, you go into some fascinating insights on narcissism and the manipulation of praise, and you state that some psychologists estimate that approximately 4% of CEOs combine narcissism with a lack of empathy and a desire to manipulate others, while other researchers argue that up to 21% of CEOs have this combination of traits. I find that unbelievably shocking and very worrying. And then I, you, you, you then say somewhere that it's been estimated that between 1979 and uh, 2006, there has been a 30% increase in the proportion of narcissists as workplace cultures reward those with an inflated view of their own abilities. I find that um, astounding, but it kind of makes sense when I think about it. 
Well, I think we can all think about colleagues who have got very far by convincing others that they're very competent, that they're brilliant, um, that they can see the future or have a good sense of, you know, trends. And the power of that, the power of self-confidence, and, you know, people are often coached to say, show self-confidence, blow your own trumpet. This is the way... um, you're going to be recognized. This is the way you're going to succeed. This is how others are going to notice that you have very special qualities. And that kind of, uh, that importance of uh, self-presentation is probably linked to the fact that there are fewer clear measures of um, success in the workplace. So, You know, when it was manufacturing, you could say, oh, well, what's important is um, how many products we produce, how many products we sell. This is how I am going to measure your productivity and how well you're doing managing these things. But if you're managing a service industry, you may have um, very vague and diffuse and changeable measures of what's going well. And so being able to proclaim with great certainty and pride, it's all going well and I'm taking, uh, I'm responsible for everything that's gone well. And then when you have a culture in which that's rewarded, and it often is in big city firms, you know, you're supposed to be really confident making sure you, the co-workers think you're great or being brazen and telling how, people, how great you are may impress your co-workers and they also expect it will, it will um, impress clients. And so more and more there's a culture in which that kind of self-promotion um, is seen to be a sign of excellence uh, it may well not be, and it having that kind of certainty that you're right, you know, not listening to criticism, uh, thinking that being questioned about your decision is unpalatable, unacceptable, that people should be, you know, punished or uh, sidelined if they're critical of you. None of these things is good for um, an organization, and you know, we've seen over the years how a lot of these very big organizations can just collapse to the detriment of both the firm and to a large number of other people. But it's still very difficult to get away from this idea that uh, blowing your own horn, blowing your own trumpet, uh, being absolutely confident, that can make people feel good. It can make people feel that they're taken care of. It can make people feel that, um, you know, you know where you're taking things and I can rely on you. But in and of itself, it's a very bad measure for all of those things. Can we talk about implicit bias and judgment in the workplace? It is remarkable to think that here we are with all our sophisticated technologies and, you know, that ultimately how we're evolving, we're still bringing in judgments into everything and that in some way it could be argued